Hello and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, Special Report with Mike White. Last episode, I asked Mike White of the Projection Booth podcast to join me in a commentary on Bruce Lee's box office smash from 1973, Enter the Dragon. After the podcast was over, I asked Mike to answer a few questions on Bruce Lee, the Projection Booth as a history project, and the future of cinema. There are a few times when I start acting a bit of like a fanboy, and I do apologize for that, but I've been listening to Mike for... 10 years now, and meeting him in cyberspace for a commentary on my show was a bit like meeting Jim Kelly at the Motor City Comic Con. Please join us as we discuss the bigger and lesser points of our favorite topic, cinema. Do you have time for some... Sure. Some post-questions? For you, of course. All right, Mike, this is going to be a special report. I've got some follow-up questions about Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon I wanted to pick your brain on. And a few other questions about uh, the Projection Booth podcast, which, like a lot of your listeners, uh, we're just fascinated with and, and try to listen to every episode that we can. So my first question, I follow your Letterboxd account. Yes. And I know that you've seen all of Bruce Lee's films in the last week. But I was wondering if you had seen any of them before we decided to do this podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I had seen them growing up. And then I went through a period in college where I rented all of them again and watched them all. I think it was probably had to have been like 93 or 94 because I, I can't remember most things in life, but I can tell you where I was when I saw certain movies. So (laughs) sitting down and watching all of Bruce Lee's films with my college roommates is what I remember. And uh, yeah, that was where I finally started to kind of figure out like, you know, like the idea of these being shot in different languages and how wacky they were at times, like way of the dragon. There's a moment where there's a white guy and then there's the very fey um, Chinese guy that they're dealing with. And they're talking to him, to the, to the, uh, the gay guy. And then they say something like, tell him I said this. And I'm like, he's standing right here. What is going on? (laughs) But they dubbed everything in English. So the language stuff didn't make any sense. It should have been, you know, they're speaking Chinese and the other guy's speaking Italian. But yeah, that was where I finally started to realize like, oh, okay. These movies were really weird when I was a kid to watch them all dubbed in English. Well, and as they became more international, it became kind of strange. Like we were talking before about the Italian system, which is, uh, you're shooting an Italian financed movie in Spain with American actors and there's Spanish actors and Italian actors and maybe French actors. And everyone just says their line and their language. And then we're going to let the overdub people figure it out. The right. post sync, the, the ADR is very weird. So what is it about enter the dragon that makes it special? I think it's, well, it's one of the first times where they had a successfully integrated somebody from a different culture into an American film. I mean, this it's such an Americanized film, but working with 
you know, Chinese crew, Chinese actors. For me, this is like the gold standard as far as how that worked, at least in the 1970s and 1980s. And we talked a little bit about uh, Battle Creek Brawl or the Big Brawl and just how that didn't work. Um, I think that also didn't work because that was much more, much more Americanized as far as like, hey, we're going to get Mako and we're going to get Jackie Chan, but pretty much everybody else in the movie is American. So I don't think that it worked very well at all. Whereas this one, I felt that they did a good job and they didn't make it so that the, the Orientalism of the film was so bizarre and strange. I mean, you get that little moment of like Jim Kelly, like, I don't want to eat this food, even though it looks delicious to me, but like, Hey, I don't, you know, but they weren't making fun of Asian culture. Right. Right. And I do remember, uh, Klaus and, um, one other people repeated it. I don't know if they, one other person repeated it. I don't know if it, it came their source was Klaus or someone else, but they said the idea of Hans Island and enter the dragon was uh, fantastic in the Eastern mind. That was just sort of kind of ludicrous, mm-hmm. but in the Western market for, for entertainment, that was completely plausible. Something yeah. that was the, foreseeable. They said that they based it off of like Terry and the pirates, that whole idea of like having these, you know, like strange otherworldly people and just, you know, making it so that it, was highlighting how different the, uh, uh, Hong Kong and, and the East is versus, you know, American sensibilities. So you can kind of get that, especially in that scene with all of the bird cages, you know, where it's very like, Ooh, look at how elaborate and lavish this stuff is. But, um, I, again, I don't think that they treated it like, Ooh, this is so weird. And look at how strange this is. It's not like, when uh, Shogun showed on TV when I was growing up and it was just like, oh man, I would hate to go to Japan because they cut off people's heads like crazy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There was an element of Shogun that was very decidedly discriminatory. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I have that on Laserdisc. (laughs) I watched that all the way through again, probably 1990 and I haven't gone back to to rewatch it, but I remember loving it when I was, when it first aired on TV, what was that? 1980, yeah, 81. Yeah. And then when I watched it in 1990, I was like, okay, yeah, this, this holds up. I don't know if it would still hold up, hold up today if I watched it. Well, I just saw it about six months ago or something and it, it, it did not look good. Oh, that's yeah, a shame. Unfortunately. So where do you see Lee's career going after enter the dragon? We know that he was working on game of death with some scenes that he had shot before Enter the Dragon. And, of course, he had the option on The Silent Flute, which eventually was made into a horrible film, I think, in 79, <laughs> yeah. with, of all people, David Carradine. And considering the action films of the late 70s and the early 80s, Charles Bronson, Clint Eastwood, later on there's Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson, would he fit in there? Do you see a career going into, like, the 70s? I don't see it as a problem because the Bruce exploitation. Uh, clearly shows that there was a market for for him, but into the eighties where we have these other stars like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, you think he would have found a place? I imagine that he would have. I mean, it is interesting that 
it's like we're finally just starting to get back to that. Like I was uh, just listening to a podcast about the Expendables, and I forgot that Jet Li was in there. And it's like, oh, yeah, because yeah, Jet Li's a contemporary action star. Donnie Yen, uh, like the Ip Man films, really seem to have crossed over um, to the point where you have Mike Tyson in one of them, which kind of seems like uh, the stunt casting that Lee was doing way back in the 70s with Game of Death by having Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's like, okay, let's take a figure from America and put him in here. And with Kareem, I know that he actually was learning martial arts, um, but then you had that whole idea of the difference between you know, this guy with these huge, long, spidery legs and arms versus little Bruce Lee. And it's kind of the same thing where you've got, you know, the muscle man, uh, Mike Tyson against Donnie Yen. Uh, but yeah, during the 80s, I mean, martial arts films were still definitely there, but they weren't in the mainstream as much as they might have been. Like that whole idea of like the Jeff Speakmans of the world, the Michael... Dudikoff, I think it was. Uh, so you still had, and, and we talked JCVD and, and um, this, um, why am I blanking on uh, Steven Seagal? You know, so you had martial arts still happening, but they weren't as front and center, you know, as you were saying, like an Arnold. But I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, JCVD, one of his best films to me is Time Cop. So he's able to do like science fiction. I would love to see Bruce Lee, like, had he made a few more films in the ilk of Enter the Dragon and then start to branch out into other things. People forget Time Cop with Van Damme. That's actually a very decent film. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that really shows that Van Damme could do other stuff than than kick. And then he did do a film in Hong Kong with uh, the comedian, Rob Schneider. Right. That I saw that was exceptional. I don't remember the name of it. Oh, it was something like Knockoff? I think, yeah, because it has think, something to do with fashion. Yeah, and I can't remember if that was Choi Hark or Ringo Lam or who the director was with that. But I mean, JCVD was really crucial to you know the bringing the Hong Kong directors over to the states, which was kind of a neat thing. Um, I mean, for better or for worse, I love uh, Hard Target. I really like Face Off, but then some of Wu's other films, it's like. Okay, and now he's back in you know China making films again. So Lee was uh, 32 when he passed away. So if you think in in 83 he's going to be 42, and in 93 he's going to be 52, mm-hmm. and then you think of Lethal Weapon was Lethal Weapon four was was with Jet Li. He would right. have been too old for for that. But it's hard to think of a of a world in which uh, someone doesn't say, um, "Hey." Mel Gibson, we would like you to learn some very essential karate moves because we want to put that in your character in Lethal Weapon. Right. With, without Bruce Lee, right? So, yeah, exactly. And I would totally love to hear Steven Seagal try to trash talk Bruce Lee while he was alive. <laughs> that would have been good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think eventually Lee would have done the the thing of going behind the camera a little bit more still remaining a personality because he had personality galore but i think that you know even seeing way of the dragon he's already moving behind the camera i could see more movies being directed by him certainly you're right about the charisma one of the things about enter the dragon that really pops out is just how unbelievably handsome he was he did have that leading man 
personality like Steve McQueen, like James Coburn, those former students of his. So something else I found in the research that I had no idea growing up was that Bruce Lee was this multicultural icon and that African-Americans were actually going to see his movies in droves. That was one of the reasons why they were so popular. Oh, yeah. And, and is there another actor that has this kind of draw or is Lee distinct in that way? I can't think of another one. Or at least this morning I couldn't. Right. Yeah, because I know martial arts films were really big amongst African-Americans might still be. I mean, we talked a little bit about the Wu-Tang Clan. Mm. Um, and I know, like, the theaters downtown Detroit, when we still had movie theaters, because um, I would go back and I would look at what they were showing uh, and to see how things in the suburbs were different than things downtown. And you could see a lot more of the exploitation and Kung Fu and things like that in the downtown theaters. Um, but I'm trying to think if there was any particular actor that would have had that draw. And I don't think there would have been, I think Bruce Lee was kind of uh, outside of the, the, the realm. As far then, as an Asian American that attracted yeah. you know, people of all color, right? exactly. But specifically um, the African Americans liked the fact that he was, he was beating the shit out of the man. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, which would take the rest of us Anglos. It's just a little bit longer to catch on to. Right. <laughs> Okay, so what is the difference then between Bruce Lee, John Wayne, Charlton Heston, Steve McQueen, as far as action stars are concerned? If you, if you look at who else is alive during the 70s, mm -hmm. right? McQueen has that laid back, cool. John Wayne is the, is the loud swagger. Charlton Heston... As a leading man, he was very successful, but maybe not an action star. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm doing a lot of research on Planet of the Apes right now, and I forget just how big Heston was. And that it was really, once they cast him, it's like, okay, now we can get this movie made. But right. he wasn't the first choice. That there were other people like uh, Paul Newman. And I can't remember who the other person was. Oh, Marlon Brando they're trying to get. You're to kidding. No. <laughs> oh. So there's a lot of like, we sent the script to Tahiti to Marlon and he didn't respond. So I guess he's not going to be Taylor in this film. That's fascinating. I yeah. can't wait for that episode. That's going to be great. And then you think about things like, um, you know, Soylent Green and uh, the Omega Man. It's like he was still very viable as a leading man. I'm not sure when he didn't become viable as a leading man. Um, I'll well, even, in the, even in the 80s, he was doing films. And I remember in the 90s, it was a big deal. He did a movie called Guardian Angel with Tom Berenger in right. which he played uh, Brigham Young. And that was sort of a seminal moment in his career because he had played Moses. He had played St. John the Baptist. Now he's playing Brigham Young. I think right. Tom Berenger was his bodyguard or something like that. Uh, and it, it, the idea that he was in his uh, 60s and he was still commanding these large salaries for these films was, was pretty quite astounding. Oh, yeah. I, I think that um, uh, obviously his, his becoming the, the head of the NRA affected his bankability. I think in, you're right, yeah. In certain circles, right? But Hollywood itself, like uh, uh, Clint Eastwood, they asked him specifically about uh, John Milius, who's a famous Hollywood right-winger, 
and Clint Eastwood uh, and Steven Spielberg, who was a friend of John Milley's, both said like that nobody in Hollywood cares about your politics. What they care about is how many tickets you're going to sell at the box office. Yeah. Right. Um, but if, if you don't want to meet with that person because of something they said on TV, then I could see that affecting um, that, that draw. I don't mm-hmm. think Bruce Lee had that problem. No, I don't think so either. I know that he was very loud, very opinionated, very controlling. But I think so much of it was that he was so driven and just, you know, had things he wanted to say, had things he wanted to show people, and that he was going to do it by any means necessary. And I I can completely see why he was that driven and why he was that loud and pushy and things. And I tip my hat to him. You know, I don't think that that was out of line whatsoever. And especially being an, uh, an Asian person trying to break through in the industry where everything is against you. And still today, it's still not easy to have Asian people in films and American films. And I don't get why that is, you know, it's like a, a, this crazy revelation when something like crazy rich Asians comes out, it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, here's this Asian, uh, film, you know, or like, uh, what was the Aquafina one? Um, where the mother i can't remember what it was called but that was like a a farewell i can't remember but anyway it was like such a big deal that you know this movie with asian people was you know breaking box office records and stuff and it's like okay great and when uh sang chi and the ten rings comes out this year it's going to be the same thing we're going to have that same discussion about why are there no you know, Asian superheroes. Why is it so tough? You know, does, does the pendulum swing so far that the entire cast is Asian versus like a mix of people? So we'll have to see what happens with that. It's a, it's a valid point because there's a lot of, obviously there's a lot of pandering uh, specifically to China in, in Hollywood and particularly with the tax incentives, you got things like um, I think it was Looper that was completely relocated uh, to outside Shanghai to be shot. And yet, right. if you watch Looper, that nary an Asian actor to be found, except in a in a very negative role. And I know that it's a crime movie. And that, that's fine. Um, but Wasn't why his do you wife have Asian? She was, yes. Yeah. And I and think that's she why had he, two lines. He, yeah, yeah, you're right. But he does tell him learn Mandarin instead of French because he's trying to right. learn French at the beginning, which was a good one. Well, that's what we should be teaching everybody in America yeah. right now. <laughs> I completely agree. As as I discovered when when I went to school there, and and I it was extremely difficult for me, and and of course I didn't keep it because that would have been that would have been a lot of foresight on my part more than I've ever had. Anyway, so um, switching a little bit now to to uh, the projection booth. For the sake of our listeners who haven't heard of you, which I, that's got to be an extreme minority, how long have you been doing the projection booth, and what was your first episode? It was, uh, it's a little bit over 10 years now. Just had my 10th anniversary in March 2021. And first episode was The Stuntman. The Stuntman. Yeah, the Richard Rush film with um, Peter O'Toole and, oh, why am I blank? Steve, Steve Railsback. Okay. Okay. So how did you get to that point to where you, you were a film critic and you were an author? What, what caused the leap into podcasting? It's funny. I was talking with my uh, former podcast partner and 
I remember it being him suggesting it, and he remembers it being me suggesting it. <laughs> so, so my memory is that we were going down to a film festival in Indiana, and we're listening to some podcasts on the way, and he said, we should do something like this. We could do it better. And his memory is that I said pretty much the same thing. So, but I really remember like him being the impetus for a lot of stuff. He was the one that actually got us Richard Rush and Steve Rails back as interviews on that very first episode, which is amazing that they agreed to be part of this new thing because there was no track record. You know, he had his writings, he had, and I had my writings. So at least you could point to that. So maybe that's what ended up getting us the deal. But yeah, that really set the tone as far as like trying to get interviews as much as we possibly can. Is is the track record helpful when you go to get interviews now? Well, John Landis has been on and William Friedkin has been on. It definitely is. I mean, that is part of my email signature is to have like little quotes about the show and have a little blurb at the bottom. Because I used to say like in emails, I would be like, we've talked with these people before and just tried to sell it a little bit more. And now I've got links and I've got quotes and I've got a little blurb that says, you know, we've been doing this for over 500 episodes, yada, yada. And people can go right to the Wikipedia page and see what we're doing. And what's really great is every once in a while, I'll run across somebody who says, oh, I'm a fan of the show. Sure, I'd love to be on. So when we uh, talked to the gentleman that directed the Poltergeist remake, and he's uh, one of the co-writers of the new um, Ghostbusters movie that's coming up, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I love your show. Sure, I'd love to be on. So that was fantastic. And then he's actually come back and been a co-host now. He is it was that fun to talk to where I was just like, Hey, do you want to come back and we can talk about movies? So he was on the hair episode. Well, every time Keith Gordon comes on, I just drop everything. I mean, it, I, oh, yeah. I love listening to his point of view. He's a great guest and a great interviewee. Yeah, no, I really like him. And what's great for me is we had him on the, uh, which one was that? Was it sleeper? No, love and death. We were talking about love and death and I had no idea that he had a connection to the movie. I was just like, hey, would you like to be on this episode? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that movie a lot. And then I get on. I'm like, so, Keith, you know, when did you first see the movie? What did you think? And he goes, well, actually, my dad is in this movie. He's the uh, cop that arrests uh, Woody Allen at this point. And so he starts talking about this whole thing of, like, his family history with Woody Allen. <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, I'm one of the kids that's playing outside in Sleeper. And I'm like, What? <laughs> <laughs> so, or when I talked to him about uh, The Shining, he was like, oh, well, you know, we were actually making Dress to Kill at the time, and uh, Brian De Palma took us all down to the theater to see uh, The Shining. And I was like, oh, my God. So it's like, not only are you seeing the movie, but you're sitting next to Brian De Palma, who's seeing The Shining with you. So, And he saw it at one of the screenings where they still had the original ending on it. So That's, it's like, you know, first first showing, first day type of thing. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, the the episode you did on Mother Night. Oh, um, yeah. Which I, I read the book Mother Night when I was in college, and I absolutely loved it. And I I think the movie is a, just a fantastic recreation of the novel. I think Gordon did a, a, a great job of it. And uh, that that scene where uh, 
White Christmas is playing. Oh yeah. And how you interviewed him and, and Gordon brought it up about how, yeah, he, he got the army surplus trunk and there were 35 copies of being Crosby's <laughs> white Christmas in it. I had to stop the podcast until I could finish laughing. I, yeah. I remember that moment in the book and I, I remember this, this sense of humor and I thought that it was funny in the book and I thought that it was funny in the movie, but it was something about that compounding interest over the years yeah. when, it, when he brought it up on the podcast. I was like, Oh my God, that's right. And I think, uh, <laughs> I think the projection booth is loaded with those types of moments. It's very successful. And some of your interviews are, are, are quite powerful. Uh, the one with uh, uh, Miguel Ferrer. Oh yeah. From Robocop. That was, that was amazing. And, and he, he was such a fan of the film and, and then you graciously published the rest of the interview where he talked about the rest of his career. Yeah. And that's a guy I miss seeing on screen. Oh, you and me both. Yeah. Yeah, that was a a big debate for a long time. And I've gotten some criticism as far as like, when I interview people, I will ask about more than just the movie we're talking about. But when else am I going to have an opportunity to talk to people? And I've had that happen to me before where I've been like, oh, well, I talked to this person about this one film. I would love to have them talk about another film. And then they pass away before I get a chance to talk to them about the second film. So, I mean... Not to sound morbid or anything, but I'm going to take the opportunity. If I get somebody on the phone, I'm going to ask them about as much as I possibly can and you know, have that stuff so people can hear those stories. Because everybody that I talk to, to me, is fascinating. And I'm just like, yeah, great. Tell me more about this stuff. And then you hear these weird like connections between people where you're just like, oh, yeah, well, and then I went over here and I met this guy. And I'm like, wow, I had no idea that you knew this or, you know, like uh, talking with Bob Booker about that movie, The Finks, where it's just like I knew that he and uh, Lenny Bruce were, fan- were friends. So I'm like, okay, well, tell me about Lenny Bruce's first show after President Kennedy died, you know, and that to me was gold to hear that story, you know, and it's like, okay, great. And I, I feel, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, big headed or anything, but I feel like hopefully somebody will be able to get stuff out of this in a future date so that they can go back and be like, you know, somebody that wants to do research, somebody that wants to write an article so they can go back and listen to these things and be like, oh, okay. And be able to, you know, transcribe or whatever and say like, okay, and now I know where this comes from. So that goes into something I wanted to bring up was the, well, let me back up a little bit. I was, I actually went to school to be a historian and I have a master's in history. Wow. And um, it was the hardest thing that I ever did, uh, but it was the funnest thing that I ever did uh, because I just love history. Um, probably just under film. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. And the two cross pollinate a lot in my opinion. And I see the projection booth as this amazing archive of living uh, film history, uh, going back as far as you want to go back. And uh, I am constantly amazed at the the wealth of knowledge of, of all of the people that you bring on and how you're able to store and synthesize. And, and like the, just last week, or just a few days ago, you published an episode on the empire strikes back. Uh, the same cinematographer, I believe, that worked on uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, that yeah. that is crazy. That that is simply crazy to think right? about. Yeah, you know, and considering that Empire is my favorite film ever, any day of the week, any hour of the day, it's Empire. I can go on and on and on. I've probably seen it more than any other movie that I've ever seen. It says a lot about uh, uh, the I read into it about fascism, about the danger of evil in our present world. And a real live warning from Lucas 
um, who said, yes, we live in this fantasy, but um, danger is real. And to, to think about the, the person who captured that was the same person who captured Dr. Frankenfurter. Oh, yeah. Right? That's crazy to think about. Uh, so I, I really do appreciate as a historian who, who when I was in uh, when grad school, uh, we were warned from the get-go, all of your material, all of your research um, is living in the moment, and no one will see it for years. And when you publish it, it will be edited down. Uh, to something that someone else thinks is manageable. Right. And the scholarly aspect of what you do is going to take decades. And when you're dealing with people who uh, lived through an experience 70 years ago, you run into the risk of losing forever the things uh, that they went through. And when I was in college in the late 90s and early 2000s, they told us everyone who is in military history right now is working on Vietnam. That is what yeah. everybody is working on. And then as they were working on that, what happened, everyone who experienced the Second World War died. And so now we have just a handful of World War II veterans, and we still have great questions about what happened. Just last right. week, they were talking about uh, uh, Operation Tiger, which was a movement in the, in the English Channel that nobody knew about that had great bearing on how they pulled off D-Day, which I bring up because today is the 6th of June. Uh-huh. And so when I, I listen to the, the projection booth, I, I constantly think about a lot of these people that you're interviewing are in their 60s, yeah, are in their early 70s, and are recalling things from the early 70s, 1970s. And I just think, thank goodness Mike has this on tape. Thank goodness the projection <laughs> booth has this. And like you were saying, this can be used as a footnote. I heard this yeah. on, on episode 328 of the projection booth, and it's there for everyone to use. I think that's exactly. a fascinating aspect of what you do, not to you know, pull your chain too much. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. That's what I've always been hoping is that somebody can glean something from this stuff. Be able, you know, like we, we used to do a, a thing back in the very first couple episodes where it'd be like, you know, Oh, well this guy worked with this guy who worked with this guy. And then we would like, kind of like tie all of our episodes together. But after you get to a certain point, it's like, yeah, you can't do that anymore. But it would be like, Oh, well, and then he did this movie with this person and just like really form this whole web. And I would love if somebody else could make that web for me now and be like, Oh yeah, here's the, here's the connectors to this. I have to tell you, like I did a lot of research on into the dragon before we talked today, but, the one thing I didn't do was reach out to anybody. And then right before we started recording, I reached out to Michael Allen, the screenwriter. And fortunately, like within the last few minutes, he wrote back and he was like, yeah, sure. Whatever you want to talk to me about is absolutely fine. So I, I, one of these days I'm going to be talking with Michael Allen. He also wrote the, uh, I think he did the first adaptation of Flash Gordon for the Mike Hodges film, which again has a whole lot of history to it. So I want to uh, ask him all kinds of questions about that. And then I'll also be asking him about uh, Enter the Dragon too. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Border Cop was another one. And Truck Turner. Yeah. Truck Turner, man. I fucking love that movie. (laughs) I've been trying to get Jonathan Kaplan on the show for years. And when we did Over the Edge, it's like I got so many people to come on and talk about Over the Edge, but he just would not do it. He sent me a Blu-ray of Truck Turner. I'm like, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. That's very nice of you. But I was really hoping to talk to him because, man, what a career that guy had. I've read in several books and online, and I've seen interviews about 
this uh, feud that got between Bruce Lee and Michael Allen and some people accusing Michael Allen of putting too many R's in the script. <laughs> I read that too. Yeah. Right? And so that Bruce Lee would, uh, would mispronounce or it would make him look foolish. And then uh, Bruce telling, uh, I believe Fred Weintraub get rid of Michael Allen, but being in Hong Kong was part of his pay for writing the script. So they couldn't get rid of him. And just by sheer coincidence, Bruce Lee saw Michael Allen on the star ferry crossing into Hong Kong. Right. I there's now again, I, I read that I think in first I've read it in, in Robert Klaus's book. And it was one of those things of, you know, do we take this with a grain of salt? Like we do with a lot of the things that Robert Klaus says, because first of all, the idea of Bruce Lee taking the star ferry is pretty amazing to me. Yeah. He would have I've been taken, mobbed. Yes. And unless he was browned out like, uh, like Brad Pitt, when you see these candid shots of Brad Pitt in public with hats and sunglasses and, or Leonardo DiCaprio or something like that. I just find the idea of him on the star ferry to be incredulous. Uh, Raymond Chow apparently told a reporter many years ago about how, uh, they would leave the enter the dragon set, uh, which was at golden harvest studios. And they would go across the street or down the street. It would just walk a few blocks away. Uh, everything in Hong Kong being so compact just to go get something to eat. And even, even, uh, other people had these stories about the, a lot of these, uh, Chinese guys just thought that Bruce Lee was full of shit, that he was this Hollywood star who was coming to Hong Kong to cash in, that he didn't really know Gung Fu and they would tap their foot three times. And that was a challenge to him. And most of the times, uh, Bruce just, just, ignored them and went on, but there were some aspects where he or some situations that he couldn't escape from. And so he had to get into these fights, uh, not, not on any machismo out of his part, but to basically uh, get this to stop happening. Enough people would see him kick the shit out of this guy so that he would, they would stop challenging him. And it right. got to the point where Raymond Chow had to get a, a limo so they could go around town and have lunch or have lunch brought to the studio so Ugh. that he wouldn't get into these fights. Cause Raymond Chow was where my star is going to get hurt. Yeah, exactly. You know, the things like that. So I, I, I have a hard time believing Klaus's story about this particular aspect of the star fairy. I have not read Michael Allen's point of view of that particular story. Mm -hmm. So it'd be interesting to see if Allen confirms that story or not. I will definitely be asking him about it. That'd be great. I'm looking forward to an Enter the Dragon episode from the projection booth. <laughs> so going back to the amount of detail in your work, which is extraordinary, and I'd like to point out to our listeners a few episodes that are my favorite, and, and I've called this out on Twitter. We had a really good exchange a few months ago. Song of the South. Oh, yeah. Absolutely fantastic episode. I'd seen that as a kid. I didn't remember it. I listened to your episode, uh, I think, twice, which was a chore because it was four hours or something yeah. like that. <laughs> I was absolutely enraptured by it. Immediately, I'm online trying to find it. Can't find it anywhere. I find three or four of my friends who, who have connections online. Eventually, I get a copy. I watch it. It is, it is an amazing experience. I think that it's a crime that Disney does not put that out with a black cover. You can buy Triumph of the Will, for Christ's sakes. Right. And there's a Yad Vesham puts out a copy of Triumph of the Will, and all the money goes to Yad Vesham. I think that there is a perfectly acceptable way for Disney to put that art into our hands with a, a good purpose at heart into to helping fight racism. Exactly. It's perfectly acceptable. Star Wars, great episode. Robocop, uh, one of my favorites, Conan the Barbarian. The Ear really surprised me. Oh, and good. Escape from New York. And here comes another question. What is up with Czech Timber? 
<laughs> Where did that come from? How did that evolve? Czech temper. I mean, I love Czechoslovakian films. I One of my favorite classes that I took when I was in college was Eastern European cinema. And um, I was so happy. I actually reached out to my professor, Herbert Eagle, recently and was just like, hey, just wanted to let you know what a huge impact you had on me. And he was, it sounded like he was very happy to hear from me and was started actually a conversation, you know, 20 some years after I graduated from college. So I was very happy about that. But yeah, I love Czech films so much that it was just like, let's go ahead and, you know, do four of them and we'll call it Czech Timber. And then it became, I mean, I can't say it's a hit because people don't listen to it, but I like it. I like doing it a lot. It's my show. So I'm going to keep doing Czech Timber. And yeah, it's just this endless well of incredible stuff. And what's really been good is just the support from second run video over in the UK, because they, you know, basically I, I say to them like, Hey, these are the movies I'm going to be doing this year. Are you putting any of them out on DVD or Blu-ray? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, we're putting out this one, this one, this one. And then they'll ask me to do commentary for them. So now I'm doing these kind of hybrid commentary episodes for them. So we just recorded one on Oil Lamps, the Uri Hertz film called Oil Lamps from 71. And then there's a couple others that will maybe become commentaries or bonus tracks on these different Blu-ray releases. So it's kind of nice that they're putting these out now so people can see them. So you're not having to struggle like you were with Song of the South. So now you can see pristine versions of Case for a Rookie Hangman or some of these other things or The Ear. Right. Great, great film. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love it. Occasionally I sell stuff on eBay. And of course, the money goes into a PayPal account. And so I use that as a slush fund to to fund my cinema habit. Uh-huh. You know, and I get a, get a bunch of stuff in from Arrow and Shout once or twice a year. And I just got a shipment in the other day from Arrow that I'm quite quite happy with. Back to your content, you put out an amazing amount of content every week. And I know that it's it's long in form, meaning sometimes you're holding on to interviews for months or years. And then, of course, you, I'm assuming that you record your discussion probably all in a day with your guests. Where do you find the time? <laughs> to do that. So pretty much every weekend, that's what I'm doing is working on the show. Um, I schedule stuff out like crazy. So making sure that I've got, you know, gaps in the schedule and I'll even schedule myself as far as like, when am I going to watch movies? I will have like this weekend, I've got across Saturday and Sunday in my Google calendar. It's like, watch these four films, watch uh, the twilight zone because we're going to do an episode of dreams for sale this week. So it's just like, yeah, scheduling everything out and then hoping everything works. This weekend is going to be bad because we had to move planet of the apes until the end of the month. And so the episode that's supposed to be this Wednesday, I'm actually recording this evening. And then good luck for me trying to find time to edit that before Wednesday. So Monday and Tuesday night are going to be very busy for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am stricken with attention deficit disorder. And uh, when I was in grad school, it was extraordinarily difficult uh, because sometimes I had to read 300 to 350 pages in a day. Mm. So how I, I broke that up was if I had four or five books that I had to read, I would just read 25 pages out of this book and then move to 25 pages of the second book. And I would cycle them out that way. Nice. And, and I would, I would find that I could chew through books that way. So of course I was medicated at the time and I have a heart condition. Now I take 
medication for, and it's a very bad idea for me to take ADD medication because of my heart condition. Mm. So I can't do that anymore. But uh, basically, I, I try to stay to 25 pages a day now of some book. And it, so it, it took me a while to chew through uh, everything for Enter the Dragon, and I didn't finish the novelization. Did you finish the novelization? I did not finish the novelization. Okay. All right. So I don't feel bad. Right. No. <laughs> so No. It's, sometimes I just can't get through stuff. Like tonight, we're talking about the black hole, and I really wish I could have read Alan Dean Foster's novelization, but that wasn't going to happen. I'll probably read the end of it just to see how he takes the ending, and then there's one of those read read along books that they have. And luckily those are out on YouTube and you can hear how they describe the ending. So I know I watched a video recently that was saying, if you don't understand the ending of the black hole, you're stupid. So I'll just <laughs> admit that I'm stupid. There's a lot open for debate when it comes to the end of the film. It's not like 2001 at all. <laughs> <laughs> I love the black hole. I'm a huge fan of the black hole. I watched it last year with my son and nice. he just started because I, I sold him on Robert Forrester and Anthony Perkins. And oh, he was yeah. just in my son is 17. And the last, I suppose that since he's 15, since he, I took him to see 2049 Blade Runner 2049. Okay. And he has been all the way into cinema as an art since that moment. Nice. So we see, we watched, we watched several hundred movies a year. And so I sold him on that and we sat through the black hole and he hated every living moment of it. <laughs> and I just, I just loved it. It was, you know, two people having divergent experiences with the same same film. It's amazing. Backing up just a tad. What is your favorite movie set in Detroit? I want to know. Gosh, favorite movie set in Detroit. I'm not going to say Renaissance Man. I'm definitely not going to say True Romance. I might say Detroit 9000. I think that's been my favorite one to see set in Detroit. Detroit 9000? Yeah. Arthur Mark's film with, gosh, I'm trying to remember all the, the people that are in it, including God, uh, Alex Rocco is the, it's a, a, a white guy and a black guy, both cops. And I can't remember who the black guy was, but Alex Rocco for sure was the white guy because he uh, agreed to be interviewed. And that's another guy where it's just like, I'm so glad that I got to talk to him before he passed away. Would have loved to have talked to him about being Mo Green, but unfortunately I didn't ask him about that. But yeah, that's a, a great film. It's not necessarily black exploitation. It's more of a black cop film. And yeah, I really recommend it. Uh, mine would be probably Dr. Detroit. Oh God. Which was that even shot in Detroit? Oh, probably not. Can I, I think it's shot in Chicago. Can I, well, that's a, that's a faux pas then. Then I'll say Robo, <laughs> Robocop maybe. <laughs> and that was shot in Dallas. Oh my God. <laughs> I thought that was RoboCop too. The first RoboCop was shot in Dallas. First RoboCop was shot. Yeah, Dallas. I'm running out of options now. Jesus, what Gross Point Blank? Well, that was shot in Gross Point, not yeah. technically. Yeah, it still works though. It still okay. works. <laughs> okay, a couple more questions. Looking at cinema as a Mount Rushmore, what is your four or five favorites of all time? Can oh, you narrow gosh. it down that far? I mean. You get into that quandary of what is a good movie versus what is a movie you enjoy. Because you can put, you know, for me, like Citizen Kane works for both, right? I love the movie and I love that it's it's so well made and such a, a just a transcendent experience. But then you think, you know, like I love Goodfellas. Absolutely love Goodfellas. I love Empire Strikes Back. 
I mean, I think they're very, very well-made films, but they're not like changing cinema history kind of thing. But yeah, I, I would probably put both of those in that, that Mount Rushmore. I mean, for me, Black Shampoo is always going to hold the closest spot in my heart. That's always at the top of the list. Yeah, I don't know what that, that last slot would be. I mean, these days I keep I keep going back to William Klein's Mr. Freedom just because of the crazy jingoist stuff that was in that in, what, 1968 and just how appropriate it is still for 2021. Um, I might put that one in my Mount Rushmore. Did you by chance see Mank yet? I haven't seen Mank yet. Okay. I I recommend it. Des- yeah? Despite all of the uh controversy. Okay. You wouldn't care about controversy, but <laughs> I I I find what Mr. Fincher did to be quite distasteful. Okay. Uh, but I still love the movie. All right. <laughs> it's one All of right. those situations. Yeah. As soon as it started to come out, I was hearing like, oh, yeah, this is the Pauline Kale argument. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Another person I don't really like. But, you know, no. Roger Ebert absolutely worshipped the ground that Pauline Kale walked on, you know. Yeah, I don't and get it. And was unapologetic about it. Let's talk about a different Mount Rushmore. I don't recall you ever covering a Kurosawa film. On okay. On the we, podcast. We talked about Yojimbo. Okay. And High and Low. Okay. And I want to, I think next year for Noir November, I want to do The Bad Sleep Well. Ooh. Yeah, okay. I really like that one. Yeah, with Kurosawa, I mean, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to see a lot of his stuff on the big screen, uh, just because there was a great Japanese society in Ann Arbor. So going to school up there, I was able to see... Ron, The Seven Samurai. I did see Yojimbo at an outdoor screening, which was kind of neat to see it that way. Uh, what else did I see? Seems like there were a couple others out there. But yeah, I, I love a good Kurosawa film, and I haven't seen a bad one yet. Right. <laughs> I was very fortunate when I was working. So when I was in college, I was working at Blockbuster Video, and I worked there a little bit after college as well. And they had a huge Kurosawa uh, section, which was really good. So I got to see a lot of things up there as well. So that's when I watched like Stray Dog and Red Beard. And then they also, of all things, they had a almost every Moldovar film was uh, available too, except for like Dark Habits. And I think by that time, Blockbuster had banned Time Me Up, Time Me Down. Um, so I still haven't seen Dark Habits, but I've, I have seen Time Me Up, Time Me Down and pretty much everything else that he did up to and including Kiki, I think it was. So that was interesting. A bunch of college-age guys watching young Almaldivar films, (laughs) 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 which are very heavy in gay content. But And that was where I got introduced to uh, Antonio Banderas, which was great as well. But yeah, so that ability to just rent and take home whatever I wanted to in college really uh, was great. And that my housemates, you know, these very, you know, regular cis white guys. They're just like, sure. Yeah. Whatever you want to show us, we'll watch it. I had a couple guys that were just like, whatever I wanted, they were watching it. They may not have liked it, but they would watch it with me. I used to work in the old patch for about 10 years and beginning, you know, when you start off as a foot soldier, they, they throw you out into the deep end of the pool, which in Texas means uh, the Mississippi Canyon block offshore. And so I'd be out there with a you know a whole bunch of guys, rednecks from Louisiana and Texas, and they throw you into a you know a room with three other guys, and hopefully you're on the same shift. 
12 on 12 off. And, uh, it was on this one uh, rig where they, they had a VCR in every room and, or I'm sorry, a DVD player in every room. And, uh, I I always brought my zip bag in my portable DVD player. This is how long ago it was, right? Portable DVD player. (laughs) And I said, Oh, this is great. I I got Queen Margot and this is a, this is a great film. You guys got to see it. And it just instantly, the other three are like Queen Margot. What is this? Ah, it's a movie about the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, 1517. You're going to love it. Right. No, blank stares. <laughs> you know, oh, come on. Like it, any movie that's got the cast of most of the cast of Killing Zoe, it's not going to be that bad. Come on. We, right. We got to sit down. I mean, I think is Monica Bellucci's in it. No, yeah. no she, yeah, so I anyway. own two copies of that movie and I don't know which one to watch. I've like literally they've been on my shelf forever because I'm like, okay, which one is the complete version? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but I, I finally, po- I finally popped it in. I didn't know there were two versions. That's fascinating, but I popped it in and I sat down and started watching. Well, those guys, obviously you have a crowd that just doesn't like subtitles right? and there's almost nothing you can do with that crowd. That was my son five years ago, but I will tell you, they got enraptured in it. And by the end of the film, they just said, that was amazing. If you can take an uncultured, uncultured is probably not the right word. Someone from a different culture who's not right. used to that that cross-culturalization and in that environment, and you can show them something they can attach to in, in an unsophisticated environment. It's, it's possible they can do it and they can completely appreciate it from their background. And that's what I think that the projection booth is doing. There's all kinds of people listening to the projection booth for sure. That's, that's an aside. Let's talk about very briefly, because I know you got to go, you got other stuff to do (laughs) the future of cinema. Oh, wow. That's Cinema a to- topic, in, isn't it? <laughs> the house itself, the screens itself. I'm going to go see The Wrath of Man tonight with my son. Nice. Um, and I didn't, uh, I didn't care to buy a ticket online because I know that when we get to the theater, there's going to be plenty of seats for us to choose from. Yeah. Right. Are we in trouble? I'm very curious. I, I don't know how it's going to go. I mean, this summer is really going to be make or break for a lot of it, I think, you know, just to see if the businesses stay open. I know some have already shuttered. For me, I'm planning on returning to the cinema probably July 9th, I think it is. And that's when the Black Widow opens. And I'm like, okay, this is my signal. It's time to go back to the theater, even though it's going to be playing Disney Plus And, you know, it'll be available online very shortly thereafter for free. Uh, I'm still going to be you know going back to the theater so yeah I, I i can't look into that crystal ball and see where we're going but this is the time to see how we're going to be able to handle stuff um i think that people are going to want to return to normalcy so much that the theaters are going to start booming again as long as they have good things that people can watch i hope that's the case we have a a theater in houston uh, called the landmark that's been on West gray, I think since 19 early 1930s. And whenever they would open a, a theater in Houston, they would bring in, I don't know if this is the same everywhere in the country. They would bring in like a major star who had a movie opening. Like Robert Mitchum came to a general cinema in Houston, 1963 to open up one of his movies. And it was a wow. big fanfare, right? Six screens, Robert Mitchum, everybody came, right? That's amazing. And that's, that's lore. That's Houston lore. If you remember when Robert Mitchum came to Houston to open up a theater, everybody talks about it, it was of a certain age, right? Uh, this theater, I, I believe it was Olivia de Havilland 
came to open up this like four screen theater and it's, it's a hassle. I live in the burbs. So to travel 17 miles in, into downtown to see it is a pain, but I saw Mank there. I saw the Irishman there. Anytime they're showing something like I could have sat home and just watched it on Netflix, but I chose to go and patronize a movie theater. And unfortunately the landmark closed oh. and they couldn't stay open. And I'm, I'm more worried about them. Now I do feel like an idiot. Cause I think three months ago, AMC stock was like 30 cents a share. Mm-hmm. And I think now it's like $15 or something. And I, I just, I should have supported it that way. I should have bought AMC stock, but I'm more concerned about the mom and pops, you know? Right. Yeah. No, no, me too. There's only one movie theater that is open seven days a week in Detroit proper, which is the cinema Detroit. And they were talking, I think two years ago, there was talk of bringing in an Alamo draft house. And I, actually was a little bit against that because cinema Detroit is really trying to do things the right way. And I mean, it's always good to have a little bit of competition, but I think Alamo draft house can throw its weight around a lot easier, but that was before Alamo started going through their financial difficulties. So I would not be surprised if those plans to come to Detroit were scrapped. I think there's one in Kalamazoo, but yeah, I agree with you as far as the mom and pops. I really hope that they, survive. And I, I put my money where my mouth is when it comes to Cinema Detroit. I am a member there, so I make sure to donate every year and just try to keep the lights on. Alamo Draft House, they've got they've got one cinema in Houston. Their big one is in Austin. I think they have two right. in Austin. It's where they're from, obviously. And and I'm a big believer of them, but if, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, they've had a lot of controversy even before the pandemic on how they've been treating their employees. And yes. I yep. hate to see that replicated anywhere else. Yeah, you know, same here. I hope they can sort that out justly. Yeah, right. that'd be nice. Mike, thank you so much. As a part, I can see the very top of your shirt. What is on the rest of your shirt? <laughs> I'm so curious, and I know it's one of those cinema shirts. No, no, this is one my wife got me, so it's really cheap. It says, that's what I do. I read books, and I know things. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mine then, uh, is is yours, actually. Uh, I, I saw that as soon as I signed on. I don't think you heard me when I was saying, oh, nice shirt. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't hear you. Yeah, I, I proudly wear this everywhere. I love it. Oh, and I did look it up. It was the farewell. Was the Aquafina movie that I was trying to remember the name of? It's that's a good good movie. I saw that on an airplane actually on the way back from Shanghai. So uh, oh, very good airplane movie and probably good otherwise too. That's a fun ride that that Shanghai run for sure. Yeah, luckily Detroit has a direct line over there. So oh, I, you're lucky. I had to go through L.A. Yeah. Well, last time we went, we actually went through San Francisco because it was a bargain that we got to do a whole tour of Shanghai and Beijing. And then we took a bus down to, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the names of the cities, but three other cities. And there was like a night in each one. It was kind of nightmarish as far as how quickly we were moving. But once we got back to Shanghai, it was just like, okay, see you later, tour group. I know where I'm at now. I'm I'm good. <laughs> I'll see you at the airport. That's the best feeling in the world, knowing oh, where yeah. you are in a foreign country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, I know how to get around here. I, let me call a DD. Okay, good. We're good to go now. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I really thank appreciate you. you making time for me in the Super 70 podcast. No, just thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate you wanting to do this with me and it was great watching enter the dragon with you the honor is all mine thanks again to mike white of the projection booth podcast for indulging me for an hour the projection booth podcast is available 
wherever you find podcasts, but it is not available on Spotify. You can find Mike and his podcast at www.projectionboothpodcast.com. You can find me, my books, my film reviews, and my blog at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis, and we'll meet you next time in New Tokyo. Thank you.